Welcome to Order from Ashes. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. Today I'm talking to Sajad Jihad, my colleague and fellow fellow here at Century International, uh, and the author of a new book, God's Man in Iraq, The Life and Leadership of Grand Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani, uh, which was published December 12th and which you can find out more about on our website, tcf.org, or wherever you buy books. Sajad, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Thanasi. So today we're we're gonna uh, try and get through a, a couple of significant things. First, we want to talk about your uh, insights into the significance of uh, Grand Ayatollah Liam Sistani. Then we want to talk about this new book that you've published, uh, and finally, we want to look ahead at what uh, what might come uh, next uh, after uh, after the long reign of Sistani ends. Uh, so. Let's just dive right in uh, to uh, the man himself and his significance, which you spent a great deal of your career uh, breaking ground uh, in research about. So why uh, why, and and how is uh, Sistani so important? Well, thank you, Zanasi. I think it's, um, it's also the reason why we decided to write or to publish this book. I think the name Sistani is very important to people who live in Iraq, people who have worked in Iraq, people who are involved in sort of policy around Iraq. But for anybody not involved in those or anybody who lives outside Iraq, it might not be familiar to them. You know, who is this guy, Sistani? Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, the Pope came to visit him in his house in Nejaf. And, you know, the Pope doesn't just sort of go anywhere. You know, he's very selective and uh, about his trips. So just thinking about that means that he's obviously a guy who's tremendously important. But what? It, why is he important and for what reason has he been relevant to Iraq and important to Iraq? It's what I try to, to answer. So Sistani is a, a, a figure equivalent to the Pope in, in Shia Islam. He's the most senior cleric um, or senior religious leader um, and has been like that for over 30 years now. Uh, he spent most of his life inside Iraq, living in Iraq since nineteen since the early fifties, and under Saddam's regime, he wasn't permitted to sort of, um, you know, exercise his leadership. Saddam's regime was attempting to prevent sort of any other leadership emerging, whether it was secular or religious or nationalist. And so, after two thousand and three, there was much more freedom, let's say, for somebody like Sistani to exercises leadership, but it was also because Iraq needed that kind of leadership. So, you know, U.S. invasion and not a clear plan for what happens after. And then, you know, very soon after, you remember the history well, we had the, the violence and then sectarian civil war. And sort of the only person who was who had credibility during this very difficult period after 2003 was Sistani, because he was consistent. He talks about Iraqis need to decide their own fate in terms of self-determination, writing their own constitution, choosing their own leaders. They needed to have elections as soon as possible. The U.S. wasn't going to be able to govern Iraq sort of indefinitely. And then even when you know the civil war, the sectarian civil war sort of started to get very bloody, Sistani was very consistent saying, look, calling for more violence and fighting and self-defense and all that is just going to add more to the cycle of violence. We need to, inside Iraq, treat each other as, you know, as brothers and we're all from the same, uh, you know, background. We're all Iraqis, went through difficult times. We can't now turn on each other. He remained consistent in his messaging. He was trying to prevent further violence. 
And then when governments were formed, he was always on the case of the politicians. You need to do better. You need to govern better. You need to provide services. You need to be fair and just. You need to make sure that, you know, you avoid corruption because, you know, we know after 2003, there was a lot of corruption already happening in Iraq. And it just got worse and worse with all the oil money. Sistani is very consistent. I think he picked up a lot of credibility from Iraqis and from foreigners just for being that consistent. He never changed his mind. He's never changed his opinions. He never sought to curry favor with the politicians. He never backed down. I mean, he stood up to Paul Bremer when Bremer was essentially the, you know, the 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 chief administrator of Iraq, let's say. Now, there, but there's there's something different that you show in, in, in your work and in this book. Uh, so it's, it's not just that this person is a uh, let's say a credible figure with uh, with an in- incredibly influential uh, pulpit from which from which he can uh, uh, provide moral symbolism. You argue and 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 I think convincingly show uh, that he affected real world outcomes in critical important ways. Uh, whether it's de-escalating civil conflict between Iraqis, whether it's uh, uh, creating uh, a pathway towards electoral democracy under the shadow of U.S. occupation, uh, finding a way out of the uh, the rise of, of, of ISIS and its threat uh, uh, to the integrity of of Iraq, uh, and even uh, Iraq's uh, uh, position in the region. I think you you showed that time and again, uh, this figure. It's not just that he's messaging or 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 making statements or somehow being a, a, a representative of, of certain views and ideas. He's steering events and, and outcomes, and I, and and that to me makes him different than a figure like the Pope, uh, who is ultimately a well. I mean, I guess people argue about this, but who seems to me more like a uh, you know a moral figure, a moral symbol. Uh, whereas in Sistani, you are showing as someone who's who's an actor, a, a, a driver. Of events, how how is it that he has power uh, to shape events and to and to drive outcomes so pivotally? So I think Sistani would not describe himself as sort of a a political leader or even politically active in that sense. I think he's he was reluctantly thrust into into politics. Let's put it that way. I think the U.S. invasion changed not just his perspective, but I think his you know his his directive. He had to become involved. He had to assume more responsibility because the country was going through a difficult phase because lives were at stake. Now, the secret of why suddenly he gained power, I think, first of all, you know, he's lived a long life inside Iraq, focused on, you know, developing his skills as a, as a, you know, a religious scholar. So people respect that, you know, he didn't have a political background, let's say, and he lived very simple life, a very, in very simple means, um, monkish in a way. And I think that, always sort of that ascetic lifestyle is always appealing to people, much more so than sort of political leaders where people fear that corruption is never far away. And because, you know, a, a, a large number of Shia Muslims inside Iraq are religiously conservative, and so they lived decades under the Ba'ath regime where they did not really have any political leadership inside the country. They were all exiled. And so, you know, when when people were looking around in 2003 at regime change, when they were looking inside the country for who who to look to, there wasn't that many inside the country at all. And those that came in, the exiles that came in, people were sort of disconnected from, they didn't know very well. And, you know, a certain number of them came into Iraq with the help of the Americans, you know, on the back of the U.S. invasion, let's say. So, you know, there was already sort of credibility and trust issues in, in that sense. Um, and I think Sistani, having remained during the most difficult period under sanctions, 
you know, following the, the Gulf War in, in 91, I think he had that respect for the people that he could have, you know, he could have left. Saddam tried to deport him. He could have left if he wanted to, but he decided to tough it out. And I think that put him in a good position in 2003. And then obviously he's using his religious power. He's a cleric who can issue rulings. He's using those rulings to say to people that it is a religious obligation. Those of you who follow me, it is a religious obligation to protest against, um, you know, the CPA's decision to write a the constitution. CPA is the Iraqis. U.S. Occupation Authority for those listeners who might be too young to remember the period. That's right. And I think 20 years later, I, I still think that um, Sistani shows power in a, in a way that we've not seen. Uh, you know, you refer to the Pope. It does not have the same political power, but we also have, you know, clerics and religious leaders in Iran who use their power differently to be formally involved in government. Sistani's model is different to that as well. He does not believe that clerics should assume political power. Instead, their job is to guide, but then also when they have to take a stand, when they need to do something extraordinary, then it is their responsibility to do so. And I think that um, mode of religious leadership or political religious leadership is different from the other two examples. Well, that and that leads to, I think, another one of your your central points, which is that uh, Sistani has developed a model of clerical authority that markedly differs from the model developed by uh, the Balayat al Faqih clerics in Iran. Can you explain what is his view of uh, of the role of clerics in wielding uh, political power and and how uh, that view has put him at odds with? Uh, uh, Khamenei and uh, and like-minded uh, folks in Iran. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, part of this is just relates to you know jurisprudence of of Shia Islam. You know, the the views on whether people should try to form an Islamic state, a, a state conf- conforming completely with the rules of Islam. And you know, there's sort of two differing views. One says that that's the job of 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 people uh with religious learning their job is to try to form the best government possible the best state possible they're responsible for people they're responsible for leading them and that means they need to try to form a state based on islamic rulings and islamic teachings and that is sort of the school that is currently um leading the islamic public in iran which is to have a, a state a government based on Islamic leadership. And the other school says, well, we don't have the divine authority to try to force Islamic governments on people. We are just regular human beings. We're not the prophet nor his successors. But we can guide. And if people want to listen to us and if people want to follow us, then it's our responsibility to give some of that guidance. But we will not call for directly leading and ruling people. So their job is sort of more advice, and I think that's where Sistani's uh, view conforms more. He believes that the role of religious leaders is to advise, uh, to guide, to warn, but not to sort of have a formal constitutional role in politics. So, so is it correct to? I mean, in in the past, I've read things that describe this approach as quietist, uh, which seems, I think, a little bit of a misnomer because uh, Sistani does believe that uh, uh, clerical rulings are, are important for their followers. Uh, so it's not, it's not a question of quietism so much as it is a, a, a matter of not wielding direct power uh, or taking roles in government. Um, and, I, and I think you also make this really interesting distinction that explains a lot of Sistani's staying power, which is by not 
putting himself at the center of events and by absolutely uh, eschewing any direct benefit or direct uh, power for himself and his clerical institutions, uh, he maintains voluntary compliance from followers uh, who see him as a disinterested party rather than as uh, someone who's trying to build a, a power base for himself. Uh, is that is that an accurate uh, representation of, of of what you what you find? Yes, I think that's, that's broadly correct. I, I think you're right. The misnomer is to say quietist versus sort of activist. Um, I de- obviously don't agree with you know the the label quietist for Sistani and his colleagues in Najaf. I think he's selective, and I think he believes that the role of religious clerics should be informal in politics rather than formal. And I, I would say that's probably the distinction rather than quite as an activist formal and informal makes more sense so he believes that you know they can speak up they can certainly speak to their followers their job is to speak up to um to guide to advise and then if there's something you know of the gravest nature then to use the power of religious rulings to to try to get compliance from the state which he did you know when he stood up to bremer and he did when he issued a fatwa a ruling to tell people that they needed to fight back against ISIS. Um, but certainly for himself, he does not want formal political power. He believes that um, that's not his job. And it is much too risky. When clerics make mistakes, then it will be the religion itself that will be a fault rather than just an individual leader. And that, that's his concern. He wants to keep the religion away from... Politics, because politics is messy and you know mistakes happen and so on. Whereas religion should be sort of much purer. That's his his viewpoint. So I think formal and informal is probably much more appropriate. You're listening to Order from Ashes. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, and I'm talking today with Sajad Jihad about his new book, God's Man in Iraq, a political biography of Grand Ayatollah Ali Sistani in Iraq, and uh, an assessment of his legacy and why he's been so important, not just for uh, Shia faithful, millions of Shia faithful worldwide, but for the historical trajectory of Iraq. Sajad, you you just referred to the, the fatwa uh, that mobilized people against ISIS. Can you spin out that example a little more to to help us understand uh, how how it is that Sistani has, in a very literal way, been been so powerful? And, and I, I mean, I think maybe even you've used this language to say that in that instance, he uh, single handedly saved saved Iraq from uh, from dissolution or, or or worse. Yes, well, I mean, I think Sistani recognizes that he has followers inside the country and beyond, and that people will listen to his words. So he's selective. I think he wants to preserve political capital where possible. I don't think he wants to sort of issue rulings every week and then, you know, watch as his political capital dwindles. So I think he's selective and he's reserved those rulings, the fatwa for the most gravest circumstances, let's say. And one of those was in 2014, in June 2014, you know, ISIS um, swept across northern and western Iraq and it reached, you know, sort of 10, 15 kilometers from from Baghdad. And there was concern that, you know, Baghdad would fall. And Sistani at that time realized that this is when he needed to use his leadership, his political capital. The government seemed to be struggling to push back ISIS. We lost, I think, three divisions of the Iraqi army, which just completely um, disappeared. People were dropping their weapons and changing into civilian clothes and just disappeared from the streets. Um, and same with the federal police. And I think Sistani recognized the danger that the fear factor was prevalent 
all throughout Iraq. And it didn't look like international support was coming anytime soon. And the government certainly had made a big mess of uh, dealing with ISIS before the events of June 2014. And it, it looked like they didn't have a plan. So Sistani stepped in, I think, you know, pres preserving the life of innocent people is probably his highest priority. And realized that you know, this was the time when people needed to take up arms to defend themselves and defend the country. So he called for volunteers because we'd lost so many people from the armed forces. He called people to volunteer to join the army and police, essentially, to take up weapons and to push back ISIS, which is what happened in the end. Um, you know, we had a lot of volunteers, over 100,000 people signed up, able men able to carry weapons and fight and push back ISIS. And I think that is an example of, you know, him recognizing the danger and saying, this is when I need to step in. This now requires something that government can't do, that regular politicians can't do. This is where I need to use my position as a respected religious leader for millions of people to ask them to do something that, for me, is an obligation, something that they are obliged to listen to and do. And, and symptomatically, he stepped in and did this only because of and after a state failure. So it's not that he was stepping in to try and uh, catalyze a, a security response to ISIS. He only did this uh, when pressed both by events and by, I think, a lot of specific individuals who came to him and asked him to intervene because the government had so abjectly failed to, to muster forces. Um, and, and, I, and I think in that episode as well, there was another critical role he played, which was in, uh, in I guess, greasing the way for uh, uh, from Prime Minister Maliki to step down uh, and be replaced by Haider al-Abadi, which opened the way for uh, broader international support for the for the counter ISIS campaign, and that was uh, that was another sort of diplomatic intervention uh, by by Sistani to to persuade or cajole or uh, I don't know how to best describe that uh, Maliki to to finally step down. Yeah, and that's and that's the use of power sort of behind the scenes much more informal. There was no sort of very public statement about it. He didn't sort of mention Maliki by name. Um, and he has no role in the constitution. There's, he's not in a position to sort of formally ask a prime minister to resign. But what he did was behind the scenes, as you said, sort of cajoling slash threatening in a sense, you know, saying that this is going to make people more angry if you cling on to power. And we will sort of start pointing fingers to say that you're behind, you're behind the failures in the country. You're refusal to leave the premiership to allow a new government to be formed is the reason why, you know, Iraq is facing collapse. So I think that shows you the other side of how he operates in terms of politics. You know, the the, the, the movements behind the scenes, uh, using his informal power to sort of make people understand, you know, that he's trying to guide them to the right thing. Now, if we credit Sistani for saving Iraq in, in, in the fatwa that mobilized all the uh, uh, people to fight, uh, in 2014, when the official forces had collapsed, uh, should we also hold him responsible for the uh, problematic or even uh, really corrosive long-term uh, uh, tension between the paramilitaries that are now sort of a formal counterweight to the Ministry of Defense uh, under the umbrella of the Popular Mobilization Forces, uh, which are a legacy also of that fatwa, uh, and which persistently have hobbled uh, hobbled uh, centralized state authority and, and made it and made it increasingly difficult to ever imagine there being a monopoly of, of of force for the state so i mean that's a common criticism of sistani but it's sort of after the fact i mean at that moment in time what what else was supposed to be done what other options existed i don't think anybody had any better ideas than asking people to mobilize to join 
the army and the police, the security forces. Well, I mean, I, 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 I think, uh, uh, I know we've had this debate at length, but it would have been for the fatwa to say people need to join only the official army and police rather than uh, allow them to join exactly, these militias. Exactly what the fatwa says. And in the week after, the week after, in his, in his speech as well, he says, he uses the word militias. He says, we did not call for people to form militias. So Sistani is very clear. I don't think that's the issue. I think the issue was that, you know, after sort of uh, liberation of Mosul, after ISIS was essentially sort of defeated as a ground force, uh, people were saying, well, these groups have now, you know, clung on to power. ISIS is gone. Wouldn't Sistani be able to issue another fatwa to say, hey, you know, militias need to disband and people need to sort of go home? And I think that's more probably where the criticism is now aimed. Not that in 2014 he made the wrong move, but now what is he doing? He knows these groups exist. He knows they used some of the legitimacy of the fatwa to align themselves with a common goal of defending Iraq, let's say, but now they're in it for self-interest. What is he standing going to do about it? And again, it's a sort of a difficult thing to say because these groups are loyal to Iran, let's say, in terms of their political leadership, in terms of their religious leadership, they adhere to Ayatollah Khamenei in Iran. They listen to him. And so Sistani is not even able to force them to disband because they don't look to him. And so if he knows that, and it's clear, then what is going to be the effect of his words to ask them to disband when you know they, they don't listen to him anyway? That's the concern. Number two, he's you know calling on the state to intervene. Because he does not want to put himself in a position where the state is so weak constantly and always looking to him for solutions. Because what happens after he's gone? You know, who is going to be in that position and who needs to take that responsibility to constantly save the government from its failure? So part of what he's done since uh, these groups have sort of become more powerful is to consistently call on government to impose the rule of law, to disband any unauthorized groups, let's say, or outlaw groups, uh, push the government to sort of do a better job of implementing its security policy. And probably that's as much as we can expect. I don't think there is more that Sistani can do to try to sort of suddenly find a way to get rid of sort of malicious. It's not really his job. That's the job of government. So let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit and and talk about how you how you reported uh, this book. Um, and and what's uh, what's sort of new and and exceptional in the in the sources you were able to to draw on to tell us this story? Yeah, I mean, so I I spend a lot of time in, in Najaf, you know, since two thousand three to the last um, you know twenty years. I've spent a lot of time in Najaf. I've um, interviewed dozens of of scholars and clerics in Najaf, some of Sistani's students some of his colleagues, um, people who've worked with him. I've talked to politicians who've interacted with him in Baghdad. I've talked to foreign politicians who you know, had dealings with him via intermediaries. I have looked at all the sort of so available sources on Sistani. And I think probably what's new is I was able to pick up information that um, is not published because, you know, Sistani is quite sort of, um, opaque in a certain sense. He doesn't sort of publish a lot of his own work. He doesn't like to, he doesn't speak in public, doesn't really appear in public. Um, there's an official biography, but beyond that, it's sort of very difficult to pick up uh, any open source information on Sistani. So I had to 
you know, through the years, collect tidbits, things that I would hear from people, um, some anecdotes. I've met Sistani uh, a few times in, in Najaf, London, when he went to for tr- healthcare treatment in 2004, medical treatment. And there are things that you notice about him when you're in close proximity, but he doesn't like to grant interviews. It doesn't give anybody sort of a, an interview an hour long where you can present a list of questions. That's not the way it works. Instead, we have these sort of questions that came in after 2003 from, you know, various wire services and and, um, and newspapers who'd sent questions to his office and they were written questions. But in terms of trying to pick up a lot of detail on what he wants to say, he's very guarded and very careful. So you have to sort of use these other sources and I've just been collecting them the last 20 years, you know, putting stuff away for the right time. And I think since sort of about March 2020, since the onset of COVID, Seastein has been much less active. And I thought now is the sort of time to bring all this information to light. And a lot of the uh, the, the texts uh, that you've translated here, that you've collected and translated that are primary texts are, are appearing for the first time maybe in any language. Is that right? In a published work? That's available Correct. I mean, um, exactly. The statements from his office, the Friday prayer speeches delivered by his representatives. Some of this is appearing in English, at least for the first time. And, and I think it's important for us to have a, a body of work that says, here's what he's done. He says, is he so relevant and important to Iraq? I think it's going to open up some of his um, some of his work or his, his, his statements and his positions to a, a, a wide audience. Yeah, and and unfortunately, we don't have we don't have time to go into detail of some of the other examples uh, like we did on the fatwa. But uh, time and again, one of the critical roles he's played has really been in deflating uh, both in intra-Shia conflict and also sectarian conflict, uh, and that's I think going to be understood to be one of the real uh, seminal contributions of his of his leadership is uh essentially being a, a shia a shia an anti-sectarian shia cleric uh who used his influence to uh to, to try and, and minimize uh sectarian violence um and and i i hope uh that that's a piece of his legacy that that finds emulators uh after he's gone yes exactly right i think you know when a time when sectarianism was the political currency in Iraq, Sistani was the only one who was actively sort of pushing against it and refused to be engaged in it and sort of uh, chastised the politicians that were using sectarian language and using sectarian politics to try to win votes and to assume positions. I think he contributed immensely to showing people this is what a religious leader is supposed to be doing. Not to be involved acting in politics and trying to court people to his side or to push people against each other, but to actually try to um, have a form of communal leadership, as we put it. And I think this is absolutely right. In the point you make about his legacy, I think this is an important contributing factor to his legacy. But it also leads us to sort of a question, sort of what happens after Sistani? Will whoever succeeds him be like him? Will they follow in his footsteps? And I think that's a concern many people have as well. Well, so how how uh, how old is Sistani today? Ninety three. Ninety three. And uh, what? Well, well, okay. So tell us what. Um, how does succession work uh, for this um, for this incredibly powerful but sort of vaguely defined role of of uh, uh, of, of top uh, cleric in the Hausa? I mean, so it's 
it's informal. I mean, there isn't sort of an election. Um, there isn't the procedure, say, that the Vatican has. It's not like that at all. Uh, it just sort of means that, you know, we have a period of time we're waiting for successes to emerge. Maybe people coalesce around one or several uh, clerics at the same time. Um, certainly, Sistani's left what I would like to say. He's left a legacy of um, what I would call the Sistani paradigm. And I like to say it's it's the way to do business, the way to behave, the way a religious cleric should uh, should lead. And I think that is going to be the defining factor for whoever comes after him is how closely do they adhere to the Sistani paradigm? You know, that the fact that he doesn't speak too often, he tries to avoid taking sides, he certainly, you know, pushes away from sectarianism, he keeps away from formal politics and having a, a you know a formal role and trying to, you know, act as a leader for all Iraqis. I think this this mode, I think, this this way of doing things is probably what's going to define who his successor will be. Well, so you you argue that that, that sort of re, re, uh, quiet, quiet form of authority is one of the reasons why he has been so influential and been so critical to stabilizing Iraq uh, uh, through a series of crises. Now, in, uh, in the contest to succeed him, which I, I think you say could unfold over many years after after his uh, his death, uh, it's not that there's going to be an instant successor uh, chosen by acclamation. There'll be some long process that could last many years. Uh, will we see some uh, uh, people, some clerics competing for this role who want uh, to deploy a much more robust Wilayat al Faqi Iranian style approach to leadership uh, in contrast to the model that Sistani uh, created? Not from inside Iraq, I don't think so. I think certainly there will be clerics inside Iran who want to promote that view. I think the Iranian regime certainly wants to have somebody in Najaf that is going to sort of be closer to its ideology. Uh, but I don't think, you know, Najaf right now or the, the senior scholars are in, who are in Najaf right now will deviate from Sistani's view. I think they will back and continue on on sort of his path, which is to say, hey, like you say, quiet power, we work behind the scenes, our job is not to be involved directly in government. And I think that is also probably what's more acceptable to most people in the Shia, Shia world, is to have clerics who are not sort of formally part of government. So in the future, I think the Iranians will try to maybe after Sistani's gone, to promote in Iraq a, an alternative view. But I think they will struggle. And certainly right now, we don't see any senior clerics in Iraq, in Najaf, calling for anything but what Sistani has already been saying. Who are the most prominent, uh, uh, plausible successors? So, I mean, the in the book, there's a, a chapter dedicated to sort of what happens after Sistani and, you know, the selection process, not selection process, but the succession process. Um, and, you know, we talk about some of his students, people who studied under Sistani, people who are close to his office, um, who are the right age. They're in the sort of late 60s, early 70s, and sort of fit the criteria and would certainly adhere to what I call the Sistani paradigm. And then, you know, there's also a wider pool of senior clerics in, in Nejef who not might not be sort of very close to Sistani, but have the right religious credentials. 
um, certainly have sort of the academic, if you want to call it that way, the academic um, history. They have these large classes. They have many students. They have sort of, sort of pop popular appeal, let's say. But it's very difficult to sort of put your hand or your finger on any one name and say it's definitely going to be, or he's the favorite, or it's definitely going to be the, that person. And I think that's probably also something that Nedjaf wants to keep, that tradition where sort of they leave it up to people eventually to coalesce around one leader rather than sort of have a very, in a sense, hereditary kind of succession. One appoints the other after his death or the senior clerics just nominate and elect a senior, a new senior leader. And I think that is something special about Nedjaf. Yeah, I mean that's that's one of the fascinating things in this book, and I, I learned a lot from your from your discussion of this. And a, a couple of things that I thought were especially uh, interesting. One was this idea that um, in past successions, there's been a sort of passing to a to a regent, like when a, a, an elderly uh, uh, Marja passes, someone who's very old will end up being uh, designated by the community as the as the top authority, someone who only has a few more years left to live in order to create a longer transition period before uh, the torch passes to a, a, a new generation. Um, and the other thing that you write about that I thought was really interesting as well is that, I mean, these, you know, a cleric like Sistani uh, wields a tremendous amount of power, including through the the qoms, for through the alms that they they gather from the faithful, uh, which they disperse through the, their their network of charities, um, and that is a tool that a cleric like Sistani could use by by designating uh, who collects those alms after his passing. Uh, he could essentially tilt the scale in favor of a chosen successor, and it seems from what you say that that's not that's not a thing that's been done uh, or that he's likely to do as well, which which I find fascinating because it's like a uh, it's like a voluntary choice to decline using a a uh, uh, a tool that that could a allow him to essentially pick his successor, even though he's not doing it officially. Yeah, I think that I mean, there's there's good reasons why that's the case. I think the concern has always been that the government will attempt to various governments over the history of Shia Islam will attempt to impose their will, will attempt to empower one merger, one senior leader, and then sort of form a way of getting control over the house and then passing it on from one cleric that they like to another. And so the house's sort of self-defense mechanism is to say, well, it's sort of difficult. You can't, one merger can't say suddenly he is the successor after me. We don't, we don't have that. And that prevents attempts at infiltration. And I think Sistani is likely to keep that tradition up. Certainly, I think, like I say, the paradigm, the Sistani paradigm, the Sistani way of doing things is going to have sort of figures that are acceptable. And I think these figures, these clerics will find acceptance. They'll find support from Sistani's office, people close to Sistani after his death to say, hey, these are the names that are acceptable. Or these are the names that we would like to support and we would like people to support. I think it works more that way rather than Sistani willing or not willing to sort of nominate one direct successor. And uh, la I guess the last question I'll ask since we're, we're close to the end of our time is uh, do you worry that the, that Iraq itself or even the wider region will uh, face bigger dangers of instability, spreading conflict, uh, sectarian conflict uh, in the absence of uh, Sistani, who's been so pivotal at, at, de-escalating dangers throughout his tenure? I mean, certainly I think his death creates a period where, you know, the, the next most senior cleric is not going to be as established or as prepared 
it creates a window for not confusion, I would say, but it creates a window where people are questioning who is the real authority out there in terms of, at least from, from Najaf's perspective. And can we have multiple leaders at the same time? And what if they have different views? I think that is a concern. Obviously, the concern is that Iran will also want to play a role in this. I think they have a keen interest on who emerges from Najaf. But certainly, I think Sistani's um, power, Sistani's um, political capital, Sistani's character is impeccable. And I think it will take time for whoever succeeds him, if there is eventually one success or if there are several, to build that up. So in that meantime, I think people after his death may be sort of not looking to Najaf for leadership. And there is the potential, if there is further instability in Iraq or the Middle East, I think that there is a potential for Sistani to be missed uh, in that circumstance. Well, Sajad, thank you so much for uh, for coming on to talk about your, your path-breaking research into Ayatollah Sistani. Listeners can find your book, God's Man in Iraq, The Life and Leadership of Grand Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani, in Arabic and in English at booksellers everywhere, online at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble or IndieBound, uh, and uh, on our website, tcf.org, the Sundry Foundation's website. Uh, and the book, as I mentioned, is, is available in Arabic as well. Uh, Sajad, thank you so much for, for your contribution to our understanding of Sistani and for uh, taking the time to help us understand it better as well. Thank you, Danasi, for the opportunity. Thanks to TCF for publishing the book. And I hope readers out there find it um, as enjoyable to read as, as I did writing and researching on it. You've been listening to Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's international affairs podcast. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. Uh, until next time. The Order from Ashes podcast has been brought to you by Century International. Our work builds on more than 100 years of commitment to international peace, security, and governance at the Century Foundation. We are independent, critical, and progressive. For more information about Century International's work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We depend on audience feedback to reach new listeners. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.